Do you remember when your children were born? Do you remember how you felt when you first laid eyes on that tiny little thing that was just so mad about being born? It wasn't happy about having its comfort disrupted and being forced out into this world kicking and and screaming. It's really a strange moment if you think about it, where so much joy and love is also mixed with so much wailing and screaming. It's a moment where the brutality and the beauty of new life are woven together. It's also a great way of understanding our story today. Because in between last week's passage and this week's passage, Abraham finally got to experience that moment for himself after waiting decade after decade. Because finally... His promised son was born. Finally, this moment of unspeakable joy was his because finally, he's a dad. Abraham watched his son grow up with all of its moments and all of its memories of parenthood, which also means he was probably driven crazy at times, lying awake at night wondering how he was going to raise this thing and wondering if he's the worst parent in the world and destroying his child. And here we are in today's passage. That little baby Isaac is now a young man. He's 16 years old. Probably begging his old man to let him go and take his driver's test. Life was good. God was good. And it was also worth the wait. But Abraham's comfort Abraham's comfort is about to be disrupted. He's going to be forced out of his comfort and experience the brutality and the beauty of new life. Because God comes to Abraham once again. He's an old man now. He's 115 years old. And God says, Abraham, you know that son that you waited so long to have, that son you love, your only son, I want you to take him to a mound that I will show you. And I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. There is simply no way to avoid the brutality of this story. And it does not ask you what you think of it. It just is. The simplicity of God's command is so unapologetic. I want you to offer your son as a burnt offering to me. It's shocking. It's uncomfortable. It's gruesome. And it puts a pit in your stomach when you think about your own kids. Offer your son as a burnt offering to me. A simple command creates all sorts of complicated questions. 
Why would God ask this? What type of God would ask something like this? How do you make sense of such a brutal story? The truth is you can't. We can't try and reason through this command as though we can make it easier to explain, to try to get out from how uncomfortable it makes us feel. It defies simplistic answers, and you cannot soften the blow. You have to just let it be what it is. It's brutal. And we have to be willing to see it in all of its crushing brutality. Why? Have you noticed in this series so far how we've simply been looking at stories that tend to get left behind in children's Sunday school? And yet, whenever we come back to them as adults, we see that there is so much more to these stories. Why is that? It's because these stories challenge our understanding of God. They make us wrestle with who He is and what He's like and how He works and how we want Him to be. Especially this story. Because it doesn't give us an easy exit or a quick way out from having to wrestle with the brutality of this command and the type of God that would give it. That's why this story isn't showing up in your best life now or Christian self-help or inspirational books. Why? Because they want the beauty without any brutality. They want Easter without Good Friday. And these stories force us to go to a place that is so hard to go. I want you to offer up your son as a burnt offering to me. And for some of us, this story touches on something deep within us that we really don't think about until we come across passages like this. It's the very simple fear that this God is dangerous. Sure, we've seen the grace of God and the stories so far, but then we get to this one and there's a part of you that's like this. This is who he really is. This God is unpredictable. This God can't be put in a box. This God cannot be tamed. And that feels dangerous to you. Because if this is how he deals with Abraham, then what if he turns his sights on you? What might he ask of you? And all of that, that's an issue of discipleship. Because there's a part of us that wants to follow, but we also don't want to get too close. So there's a struggle of faith. Is it really worth it to follow this type of God and go all in? What's the point of being blessed if he's just going to take it away to teach me a lesson? Or simply because he can? Or maybe if I'm just good enough of a person, then I can fly under the radar of his attention to avoid his gaze so that nothing like this would happen to me. It's a story that asks you, how close do you really want to get to this God? And we have to see the brutality of this story because it draws out our deepest thoughts about God to the surface. It won't let us look away, and it forces us to consider this God once again that we claim to follow. But 
At the same time, if we are willing to look at the brutality of this story, it's the only way that we can come to see the beauty of the God in this story. Because believe it or not, that's the invitation. God's inviting you into a deeper understanding of who he is and a deeper relationship with him now and always because he's the God that comes close to you. Because that's exactly what he's doing with Abraham. And oftentimes when he comes close to you, he asks for something precious to you. And that feels dangerous. And yet God is drawing Abraham into a place that's so hard to go, yet what he finds on the other side is inexpressible. The passage begins by telling us that God is testing Abraham. And right there, verse 1, there we go. Right there, that challenges our view of God right from the start. Because we don't like the idea of a God that tests us. I mean, really, when was the last time you even thought about the possibility that God may be testing you and your faith? We don't even think about God testing us. And yet, when hard times come, what's our first response? It's to escape. Hit that eject button. We pray to get out of it, we try to escape it, we hope to fix it, we medicate ourselves through it so that our lives can go back to whatever version of normal feels most comfortable to us. And yet how often do we think that perhaps we're being tested? How often do we pray that we might be faithful through it and in it? And this testing is part of why God feels so dangerous, because he is. He's dangerous to your comfort. He's dangerous to your ease. He's dangerous to our hopes and our visions for life because he operates by a different set of priorities, purposes, and goals. And the fact that God tests us is uncomfortable because it reminds us that he operates by a completely different agenda than we do. And that feels threatening to people shaped by a culture where we're told from the day we're born that independence is a virtue and comfort and ease are your highest calling in life. And if testing isn't part of how we understand God, then inevitably we adopt a version of God that's distorted. We're simply left with a God that never requires anything of us. A God that simply accepts us as we are, always as we are, but never changes who we are. We're left with a God that only reinforces what we think is best for ourselves. And we distort who he is and we distort his grace and we think of it more like it's an excuse. We distort his love and think of it as though it's more like a license to live how we want because he'll always welcome us back, won't he? A God that doesn't test us means that we're simply left with a therapeutic, self-esteem God. One that just makes us feel good, but not one that makes us good. A God that doesn't test you means that all you have left is a God that doesn't have a plan for you. And if that's true, then what are we doing here? Let's go home. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we die. And this is as good as it gets. But yet, testing tells us that there's something more to the story. 
This part of the Abraham story teaches us another aspect of how God tells his story and how he enters into this world. God will test his people. He tested Abraham. He will test you. And he will test me. And when we look at how Abraham was tested, it helps us understand how we are tested. So if we just start with a simple question, why does God test Abraham? And especially, why does God test Abraham now? Because if you think about it, it's really strange timing. When God made his promise to Abraham of land and innumerable offspring, and the fact that he would be a blessing to the whole world, all of that hinged on the birth of Isaac. Isaac's birth was what set all of those promises into motion. Isaac was the living, breathing, flesh and blood representation that God's promises were at work in this world. And here we are 16 years after Isaac's birth. God has already done what he promised that he would do. Abraham has his promised son. So why is God testing him now? Because on the one hand, you might think, well, what's the point, right? Since Isaac is born, you'd think that that would mean the end of the Abraham story. He served his purpose, and now the attention would focus on Isaac. But that's not what happens. It wasn't the end of the Abraham story. Now, he's come to the greatest test that he would face well after Isaac was born. You have to see that God doesn't just use Abraham in some utilitarian way. And once Isaac is born, God is done with him and moves on. God had already done what he said he was going to do. And so he didn't really have to test Abraham like this whatsoever in order to stay true to his word. But he does test him. Because this test means that God is not done with Abraham. God tests Abraham because he loves him. He's after more than just Abraham's generic participation. He's after his heart. He's bringing Abraham into a deeper relationship with him. He wants to give Abraham something far more precious than anything he'd been given already and far more precious than anything he was being asked to give. So why does God test you? Because he isn't done with you. He's come close. He's at work. He's inviting you into a deeper relationship with him because he loves you. God does not invite you to worship on Sunday morning because he likes to pad the attendance numbers. God doesn't invite you to give because he needs your money. He's not after your generic participation and checking of boxes. He's after you as a person. All of you as a person. To see him, to know him, and to experience him in the most profound of ways. And oftentimes, that invitation begins with the request to give him something that is precious to you. Because he wants to give you something more precious than anything else he asked you to give him. And that can be really hard to believe when you're in those moments of trial and you feel as though your faith is stress-tested beyond what you can bear. 
and it feels so thin and stretched out. And you can only imagine how hard this was for Abraham to believe. So what did he find? And how can we find what he found? Well, God comes to Abraham with those gut-wrenching words, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him to me as a burnt offering. And with those words, the test begins. His otherwise joyous and comfortable life had now been interrupted, and he's now being forced out into the most brutal of circumstances. And the thing is, he didn't ask for it. And neither will you. Testing just comes. And every test has questions that have to be answered. And we look closely at how God tested Abraham. We see the two questions that he had to face when he was tested. And they're the same questions we have to face whenever we are tested. The first question we see is by looking at this call, this command. God's command to Abraham is similar to the last time that he called Abraham to get up and go to a place that he would show him. But back then, in Genesis 12, that call to get up and go was attached to incredible promises that he'd have a son, innumerable offspring, a land that would be given to him as an inheritance, and that through him, he would bless the whole world. But this time, when God calls him to get up and go to a place that he would show him, there is no promise attached to it. None. There's no promise of blessing and abundance, but only sacrifice and loss. So here's the first question on the test. Abraham, will you follow me when you can see no personal benefit? Will you follow me when the obedience I call you to is blind and you can't see any good that will come of it? Will you follow me when it costs you something that feels like it's way too much to give? And that's the first question. But the second question requires us to look deeper. And we have to put everything together that we've learned about the Abraham story so far. Obviously, Abraham is being asked to give up what's most precious to him. But it's really far more complex than that. Because remember that all of God's promises are bound up in Isaac. Isaac is the promised son. Everything God promised Abraham, inheriting the land, being a blessing to the nations, innumerable offspring, all of that went through Isaac because he was the child of promise. All of that was only possible if Isaac was born. Because his birth was what set these promises of God in motion. And Abraham knew it. Abraham knew all of those promises went through him. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham knew that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It was Isaac, the promised son. That was the flesh and blood representation of the fact that God was at work in this world. And so when God comes to Abraham and asks for Isaac's life, how does that look? 
How confusing would that be? Because what does that really mean? The command to sacrifice Isaac would appear as though God is removing his promises from the world. It would appear as though God was backing out of his promises and removing them from Abraham, from Isaac, and from the whole world. So not only would Abraham lose his son, it would also appear as though he was losing his God. And the promises were off the table. And yet, didn't God promise that all of this would come to pass? How then is that possible? This is a deep crisis of faith. And you can only imagine all that Abraham had to wrestle with in this moment. Even the simple things of thinking, did I do something wrong? Am I being punished? Didn't God promise that all this would come to pass when he made a covenant with me? Didn't he swear by his own life? Does this mean that his promises to me are no longer true? How can I trust that God will stay true to his promises when he's asking me to do something that would make them impossible from happening? So here's the second question on the test. Abraham, will you still follow me when what I ask you to do seems to contradict what I've promised you? Will you obey my voice even when it doesn't make sense? Will you still follow me even when it feels like I'm abandoning you? It's a brutal test. But here's the thing. He still did it. Abraham still did exactly what he was asked. In the face of those questions and all of the confusion and uncertainty and the tension that they produced in his heart, he still did exactly what God asked him to do. And we don't actually see Abraham waver in his resolve. He doesn't try to run. He doesn't raise any objections. He doesn't negotiate. In fact, he's completely silent. We're not given a word of which he spoke. But we're given God's words. And he heard the voice of God. And then he got up the very next morning and he started packing. That's faith. But let's not pretend as though that obedience was easy. Can you imagine the nausea he felt as he chopped the wood that morning and loaded up his donkey. Can you imagine the pit in his stomach when he woke up Isaac that morning and told him to get dressed because they had some place to go? Can you imagine what it was like when he heard Sarah ask, so where are you guys headed last minute? Can you imagine what it was like when he sees Sarah kiss Isaac goodbye and say, the things moms do, be safe, listen to your dad. And then they travel for three days, each one feeling like an eternity. And all of those questions just kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier and haunting his mind. Think he'd get much sleep during that time? Of course not. You can imagine Abraham lying awake at night looking at those very stars that God used to promise him all of those beautiful promises and thinking, how is it possible that he could stay true to his promises when he's asking me to do this? 
And finally, on the third day, Abraham saw the mountain. He left his servants behind. And at the bottom of it, he placed the wood on Isaac's back, and they started up the mountain. They get to the top, and Abraham builds the altar. And Isaac, who'd asked before about where the animal for the sacrifice was, must have figured it out when he saw his dad turn to him with a rope. Abraham tied up his son, and he laid him down on the wood of the altar. And with a trembling hand, he grabs the knife to sacrifice his own son. What would bring Abraham to this point where he resolved in his heart to sacrifice his precious son and grab that knife? In the face of all of those questions, how did he come to resolve all of that tension and all of that confusion and be obedient? How was he able to do what was asked of him when it appeared as though all of the logic in the world said that God was withdrawing his promises from the world and leaving him behind in it with nothing but a broken heart and a broken world? What gave him the strength to grab that knife? Quite simply, he trusted in the character of God. He trusted in the character of God. Of God. He grabbed that knife because he believed that God would still do exactly what he said he was going to do. All of his promises would come true through Isaac. He went all in on the character of God because he believed that God had made promises to him and he trusted that God would keep them, even when all the logic in the world said, It was fundamentally impossible. And when Abraham grabbed that knife and trusted in the character of his God, it meant that he came to a very particular conclusion. And honestly, it's the craziest part of this story. Because what conclusion could he possibly have come to in order to still believe that God would keep his promises through Isaac when he's asking for the very life of Isaac? Abraham came to the only conclusion possible. He believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed that God would stay true to his promises and resurrect the promised son. It's exactly what Hebrews 11 tells us. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned. He reasoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. That's faith. That is mega, big time faith. He's believing in something that had never even happened before. Believing in the possibility and hope of resurrection. It's that kind of faith that comes from going all in on the character of God. 
And there's a part of us that reads that and hears that and thinks about it, and we think, I wish I had that kind of faith. Or we think, man, I will never have that kind of faith. But look, this type of faith did not happen overnight. This type of faith came from a life of faith. This type of faith came after years of Abraham building altar after altar after altar in worship to God. This type of faith came after years of honoring God and recognizing that it's from his hand that he has all good things. It's this type of faith that came from wrestling with all of his doubts in all of those moments of uncertainty and offering that weakness and vexation to God. That type of faith came from clinging to God's promises and remembering the fact that God went all in when he made that covenant with him. And it brought him to the point where his darkest hour of trial came. It was also his finest hour. Because he went all in on this God that had already put all his chips on the table. He trusted in the character of this God that he would do exactly what he said he was going to do. And on the other side of that obedience, Abraham found the love and affirmation of God. And he would go on and die in peace just as God had promised him. So what about you? How can you know if God is testing you right now? Well, your testing begins in the same way it began with Abraham. God will ask you to give him something precious to you. Maybe something really simple and yet it feels so big. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's something bad. Maybe it's something as simple as starting with your time, your money, your security, your sleep, or your vice. He'll ask you to give him something that you feel you couldn't possibly live with or live without because without it, the world just feels so gray and that thing offers so much color to your life. God says, I want that. I want you to give that to me. And in that testing, you will think to yourself at some point along the way, is it really worth it to follow this God? Maybe not in those exact words. But it's a feeling deep in the heart. Will this God follow through? And when God tests you, God is asking you those same questions. Will you follow me when your faith is blind and you can't see any good that will come of doing what I ask you to do? Will you follow me when the math doesn't add up? Will you follow me when things don't make sense? Will you follow me when you don't see the benefit in what I ask you to do? feels like it completely contradicts all of the wonderful, beautiful promises I have for you. God invites you to go all in on his character, to trust this God who has made promises to you and keeps them. When I was in college, I worked at a Panera Bread. During the summer, in between classes, my roommate was an assistant manager there, and so he got me the hookup. He also bumped up my pay a little bit to $8 an hour, and so I was killing it, making all sorts of cash, slinging sandwiches. It was a great summer job, and I met the boss of that job on that first day, and I got to know him quite a bit, but the thing about 
his name was Dan. The thing about Dan is that Dan was just the type of guy that you couldn't resist giving a hard time. He's the type of guy that would get flustered, and so all of us college students working there took it upon ourselves as our personal mission in life to give Dan as hard of a time as we possibly could, as often as we possibly could. So we'd get him all flustered, and he'd blow up at us, but we knew Dan loved us, and Dan knew that we loved him. And Dan will have my respect until the day I die. There was one Saturday where it was particularly busy. And the way it's set up is that one of the areas that we were assigned to was the front of house, where you bust all the tables, but you were also responsible for the bathrooms, keeping them clean and stocked. And then on that particular Saturday, I was slinging bagels in the bakery. And I remember the girl who was working out in the dining room running back frantically. And we were wondering what was going on. <laughs> And, she, and we walked over to her to try and, get us, try and figure what it was out. And there was a little huddle of all of us seeing what it was that bothered her so much. She'd gone into the bathrooms and she discovered that somebody had smeared waste all over the bathroom. Stalls, walls, floor to ceiling. It was covered. It was disgusting. It was filthy. And right about that moment, all of us got really busy with whatever it was that we were doing. <laughs> I need to stock all of this stuff, right? Because she said, I can't do it, because as soon as I went in there, I started dry heaving. She's, I, I have a weak stomach. I'm just going to create more of a mess if I go in there and try and clean it up. And they were like, well, I'm not going to do it because I've got a weak stomach too. And so why don't we have them do it? Well, and everybody's arguing about who's going to do it. And as we're arguing about who's going to do it, there was Dan come up from the back with a mop and a bucket and all the cleaning supplies. And he didn't say a word. He just walked through all of us. He walked through the dining room and he went back to that bathroom and he cleaned it up himself. He spent four hours in that bathroom. Whenever he was doing that, I will never forget the how quiet it was amongst all of us working there that day. Everybody just worked a little bit harder. Everybody helped each other out, was willing to give an extra hand, knowing what Dan was doing in our place. It was a sacred moment, quite frankly. And Dan came out, and later that day at the end of my shift, I walked up to Dan and I said, Dan, why did you do it? You didn't have to do it. You could have just as easily had any of us do it. And he looked at me and he said, Zach, now you know that I will never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. It's in the brutality of this story that we see the beauty of God. It's in the brutality of God saying, Abraham, take your son, whom you love, your only son, and offer him as a burnt offering to me. And yet, as hard as this command is to swallow, God isn't asking Abraham to do something that he is not willing to do himself. Because this brutality is how we see the character of this God. It's only in the brutality of what Abraham was asked to give God that you can see the beauty of what God has given to you, Christian. 
The shock of hearing, Abraham, give me your son. How much more so the father says, here is my son for you. It's the beauty and the brutality woven together. And when Abraham and Isaac walked down the mountain together, Abraham named that mountain Moriah, which means God will provide a sacrifice. Because when Abraham grabbed that knife, God grabbed Abraham's arm and stopped him. And he provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. And you know this mountain. You just know it by a different name. This mountain is Golgotha. The very same mountain upon which Jesus was crucified. It's the same mountain where at the bottom the father placed the wood of the cross on the back of his son. The son carried it up to the top in all of his blood, his own sweat and his own tears and a pit in his stomach. Wearing a crown of thorns because he is the ram that was caught in the thicket. He was the substitute that laid down on the wood of that altar and they bound him to it, not with rope, but with nails. But this time the father didn't stop the knife. He let it fall. But once again, how could God stay true to his promises when he asks for the very life of the son upon whom all of those promises rest? It's the only way possible. He raises him from the dead. He resurrects the promised son. Why? Because he's the God who makes promises, and he keeps them. When God asks you to give him something precious, it feels brutal. Yet on the other side of that obedience is something far more precious and beautiful than what he's asking you to give. What is it? I have no idea. That's a mountain only you can climb. And you can only find it if you're willing to go all in on the character of this God. Because he's the God who makes promises to you. And he keeps them. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.